Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Glad you're here today. It's good to share this time of worship and fellowship with each of you, and we're glad that you're here and welcome each and every one of you. We welcome our guests especially. We're uh, happy that you're here with us today and, uh, and want you to know that you are very much a part of our family together and, and uh, as we worship the Lord. Let me remind everyone of our attendance sheets on each row. We'd like to ask, if you would, to... Uh, Uh, Take those and fill those out so we could have a record of your attendance with us. If you would do that, we would certainly appreciate that. And we have a number of uh, announcements today. First of all, you may look back there on that back wall and you will see the product of something this weekend. Uh, This weekend we have been, we've had the the Community Baptist Church sewing bee and uh, there were people here on Friday night cutting out patterns and on Saturday uh, sewing, sewing them, putting them together. There's some uh, pictures there. And um, I think the product, or the product that we uh, turned out was 14 dresses. Thir- uh, yeah, there were thir- uh, 14 dresses that were completed. And these dresses will be going to orphanages in Kenya and Guam. Kenya and Guam. Uh, we have some mission teams that will be headed in that direction that, and that we're plugged into, and they'll be taking these dresses with them to Kenya and Guam. Mark, I believe you have an announcement you'd like to make. I do. On Saturday, September 26th, we're going to have a uh, choir workshop, and um, we're going to have uh, Mr. Tommy Tate come and help with our choir and lead us, and uh, you're all invited. It starts at 2.30 be over about eight o'clock and we also are going to have dinner so all you prospective choir members and even if you don't want to be a full-time choir member if you'd like to come and and enjoy that time and learn some songs and sing we'd love to have you good thank you that's a great opportunity so and we're grateful to tommy for uh, uh leading us in that and so that's a wonderful opportunity hope you'll take advantage of it uh, several things that, several other things we have coming up on, um, it's going to be a busy weekend. On Friday and Saturday, we have our Sureway fundraiser. Uh, that's at the Eastgate Sureway. We will be uh, barbecuing chicken and uh, pork chops and ribs, and I hope that you will come by and partake of that. Uh, we could use some volunteers, and we also need you to uh, pre-sell tickets. There are some tickets, I think, on the desk in the office that you can take with you and sell them to your friends and family and anybody that you can twist their arm to uh, to buy some tickets. And I promise you they will not be disappointed. These, this is some really good food that uh, you're purchasing, and all the money goes towards our mission projects here at Community Baptist Church. I said it's a busy weekend, and that's because Saturday also begins our upward basketball and cheerleading season. Our first games are on Saturday. And uh, so I hope that, that you'll come out. Our volunteer base is a little little thin because some of us will be here and some of us will be at uh, the Sureway fundraiser on Saturday. So we could use your help. Just come on out and uh, just be a presence here. And if you don't know what to do, we can we can put you to work. I bet. Uh, we're we're also looking for more scholarships for our upward uh, players and cheerleaders. And so if you would uh, like to contribute uh, some scholarship money towards that, uh, we would be most grateful. Uh, Also coming up on the 27th, we have our church picnic. That will be right after the worship service. And 
we will be grilling out uh, the, uh, hamburgers and hot dogs and pork chops or whatever we have going. And uh, if you'd like to bring a side dish, you'd be welcome to do that. And on October the 14th, we have our blood drive that's coming up. And let me see if I get this right, Jacob. Uh, the Red Cross is reserving the 2 o'clock hour for our members, for, for our people. And uh, so if you would like to uh, make a reservation for that 2 o'clock hour, then see Jika, and uh, she'll be glad to, to set you up on that. Okay? Did I get that right? Good. I got it right. <laughs> uh, I want to let you know also about our capital campaign. You know that uh, uh, we had a vote on that a couple of weeks ago as to whether to pursue a capital campaign or not. And the result of that vote was that 62% of of the votes cast were in favor of proceeding with the capital campaign. However, and and the deacons kind of decided this even before we took the vote, we don't feel that 62% is enough of a majority to move forward with this. We don't think that that's a mandate for us to do that, and we don't want to uh, create any, any strife within the church or anything like that. So we will not be hiring uh, Horizon Stewardship to, to help us with a capital campaign. However, that being said, this, the debt is still there. We still have that debt. The debt still remains, and, uh, and we need to deal with that. So we are looking at some other ways uh, to maybe pay down this debt over the next few, few years. Uh, we don't have anything in concrete at this point, but we're looking at some ideas and uh, so if you have any ideas, please uh, feel free to share that with anybody on the finance team. But in the meantime, stay tuned. We're working on it, folks. We're working on it. So uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to deal with this in, in some way. Let's stand now and let us sing our song of gathering. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Let's sing. Before we uh, move into our, our prayer time, uh, I, I, I want to remind you also that we are taking uh, deacon nominations today, and I hope everyone was, was given a form. Does, does anybody need a form? Has, does everyone have a, de- a form? Okay, we have some here. Um, can we get somebody to... Okay, thank you, John um, and Dottie. 
we'll get some in here. And if you have, if you need a form, uh, let us know. Um, and if you would take that form, and these are people who have uh, uh, have not indicated that they are, their name would be removed uh, from the list. And so if you would take that form and circle five names on that form, we're, we're looking for five names, five, five names circled. And that's important because if you circle six names, we've got to throw the whole ballot out, okay? So circle no more than five names on that list there and, uh, and then drop it in the offering plate as it goes by a little later on in, in the worship service. And uh, we will take those and, and tally those in a little bit. Okay. Does everybody have forms now? Okay, good. Let's pray. And let us begin with just a time of silence. Just resting in the Lord and drawing upon the comforting presence of God. Oh God, it feels rude somehow to break the silence, short as it was. We had hardly begun to be quiet, and now we are back into words. In our search for you, we confess that sometimes we reflect too much, we analyze too much, we talk too much, figuring out, thinking aloud, God, give us more silent space so that we can discover the world beyond our making. Be the word that comes to dwell in the silence, offering a sense of calm, a sense of comfort. And help us to remember, O God, that in the silence we can know that you indeed are God. Amen. We gather together for worship, singing our praises. Some sing gladly. We sing quietly, nourished by a deep and inner peace. Some sing haltingly, their notes tripping over their fears. Some sing longly, remembering good, past, good days past, but not yet daring to hope for the days to come. We confess, O oh Lord, our worship, and by your loving presence, we hear our many melodies into one great symphony of love. Amen. Mm-hmm. 
Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 35. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone want to become my followers... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, is that better? Before you leave today, my little girls, be sure and look at the bulletin board. Miss Mary finally got our pictures there from Holiday World. And as I was looking over at the Holiday World pictures, this was my very favorite time. I've never seen a breakfast pajama tug of war. But there, there's another one on the board. But that was my very favorite time of the weekend. Um, tug of war. Remember this rope? It doesn't have two ends on it anymore. I wonder why. Hmm. Do you know people play tug-of-war sometimes? Churches play tug-of-war sometimes? Uh-oh. Let me show you what I mean. All right. Sarah, you be team captain. Georgia and Neva are on your team. Stand up. And we're going to pretend like that line right there is the line. Nope, nope. You guys come over here. Remember how we played tug-of-war? Come on, you guys. It hasn't been that long. You get this way. Okay, you guys, there's three people on your team. Okay? Hang on a sec. All right, Kelsey, come up here. I know. Come on. Remember how we did this tug-of-war? We don't have all day. Let's go. All right. All right. All right, Don, you're on Kelsey's team. Come on. John, you're on Kelsey's team. Come on. Okay, now if now wait a minute, don't start pulling. This is this is Kelsey's team. Okay, so girls, look at these two teams of tug of war. This is what I'm talking about. People have tug of war sometimes. They're mean to each other. They like to pull people down. If I say go right now, what's going to happen to your team? 
<laughs> uh, uh, Georgia, I don't think it matters how hard you pull. You would go down in a heartbeat. Sit down. You're not really going to pull my girls down. Go, go ahead. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. All right. Okay. Let me let me tell you what I mean. Does that make sense? Do you think this church, Community Baptist Church, do you think we play tug of war? Do we try to tear each other down? Do we work together as a team? We do. And I want you to remember this team, CBC, or our team, came together to send you all into Holiday World. Remember the day we did the 50s luncheon? And everybody came in here and everybody participated and raised about, if you hadn't heard, folks, we raised about $1,900 for that uh, weekend. So enjoy all the pictures on the board. But this is what I want to leave you with. Don't come to our church and play tug-of-war because we just don't do that. We all get along. We all pitch in for each other. We don't try to bring each other down. We don't try to say mean things to each other. Those of us who love God, especially those of us in the church, should pull together as a team. We should not pull against each other, and we should not try to pull anyone down. And our church does a beautiful job, whether it's upward, whether it's sewing, whether it's the barbecue thing. We're all going to pull together for a team. We've got so many things coming up, but that's the way our church is, and that's the way we want to grow up to be more Christ-like. Don't try to pull other people down. Work together as a team. And no tug-of-wars in your life, okay? All right, let's go up. Father, you have given us many blessings. You give us shelter, clothes, food, and water. 
You call us to give in return for life, to deny ourselves, to follow you, to set our minds on divine things rather than human things. Help us in this offertory moment to focus on you as we sacrificially give our tithes and offerings. Thank you for teaching us how to be generous givers without expecting anything in return. Please now take it and use it for your kingdom and your glory. Amen.
I hope you know how blessed we are to have such a wonderful music ministry here. Our choir thrills us every week. Jika and your playing and Nibby and and Mark and and it's just wonderful and Becky it's such a treat when you are playing the flute with us it just adds so much to it and we're just so grateful thank you to all of you one of the um, most important frontiers being explored by today's scientists is that of artificial intelligence in other words teaching computers to think like human beings In fact, there are many scientists who believe that by the middle of this century, computers will be able to think more efficiently than human beings. And at that point, that sci-fi horror movie of robots taking over the world might be a credible thing. But there are skeptics. Uh, The great computing science pioneer, Alan Turing, about whom last year's movie, The Imitation Game, was based. Uh, He once said that he could call a machine intelligent when it was able to have a credible conversation with a human. But, of course, Turing didn't even imagine that one day we would have things like Siri, for example, the voice on the Apple uh, iPhones and iPads. Anyway, Turing's test was whether a computer was able to carry on a conversation with a human being. But the truth is that it's a lot easier for a dumb machine to converse with a human than Turing might might have thought in his day. In the early days of MIT's artificial intelligence lab, Joseph Weizenbaum wrote a program called ELIZA, to demonstrate how easy it was to meet Turing's test for intelligence. And I've seen Eliza. I've I've seen it work, and it's pretty amazing there. He he did this, he wrote this program by, uh, and he did it by means of a few good educated guesses as to what people might expect from a conversation, say, with a psychiatrist, for example. For example, he might, if someone says, everybody laughs at me, Weizenbaum surmised that this probably reflected a recent experience where the person felt that somebody was laughing at him. And so the statement, everybody laughs at me, might elicit a response from the computer like, tell me, who laughed at you within, within the last few days? And this would be a typical response of a real-life, non-directive psychiatrist. Or suppose a person asks a question with a proper noun in it. Weizenbaum programmed the computer to respond with the words, Why are you interested in... And put the proper noun at the end of the sentence with a question mark. For example, if somebody, if a person asks, I understand that you live in New Jersey, Eliza might answer... Why are you interested in New Jersey? Well, as an example of how this might work, Arno Penzias provided a transcript of a typical conversation from a human being to Eliza. The human might say, are you really a psychiatrist? And Eliza would respond, why are you interested in a psychiatrist? And the human would say, well, I'm not interested in a psychiatrist. And Eliza would say, 
you say that you're not interested in a psychiatrist? And the human would say, well, that's right. I've never had hang-ups about my parents or stuff like that. And Eliza would respond, well, tell me some more about your parents. You kind of get the idea here. And Weizenbaum provided Eliza with a number of such response recipes. And he, he also took care to break things up by having the program uh, select responses randomly and intersperse them with encouraging phrases like, Please go on or tell me more. But here's what's amazing. According to Penzias, Weizenbaum's program fooled a lot of people. In fact, it fooled them so well that for years after, afterwards, many who had conversed with Eliza refused to believe that the responses came from a machine. And when Weizenbaum finally pulled the plug on the program, there was a great uproar that ensued as a bunch of MIT computer users protested the loss of their regular sessions with this friendly therapist. So you see, this gap between human beings and machines may not be as as great as we think. It may just be a matter of careful listening and asking the right questions. There's a famous encounter between a father and his son. Instead of asking his son if if he knew all the answers in school, he asked him, did you ask the right questions today? You see, this father believed that asking the right questions was just as important as knowing the right answers. Tom Peters The well-respected business guru encourages asking questions in the workplace, even what may seem to be a dumb question. As someone has put it, asking a dumb question is a lot easier than correcting a dumb mistake. And every good teacher knows the power of asking the right questions. And there's no doubt that Jesus was a good teacher, the best teacher. And like a good teacher, he asked a lot of questions. Questions like, if you are friendly only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the heathen do that. Or, can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Or how about, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Or, who is my mother Who are my brothers? You see, Jesus literally asked hundreds of questions. And that's what teachers do when they want people to think for themselves and to come up with their own good, solid conclusions. But the most important question that Jesus ever asked is found in our lesson for today. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they replied, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist and others say you're Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. And then he turned to them and said, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? Do you see what he's doing here? He wants his disciples to decide for themselves who he is. 
He doesn't want them to parrot the answers of others. He begins by asking what others are saying about him, but he already knows what others think. He's heard. What he really wants is to hear his disciples voice their own thoughts about who he is to them. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Well, it was Simon Peter, of course, who answered. Simon was always quick to shoot from the lip. Did y'all catch that? (laughs) Some of you did. And Simon said, you are the Messiah. This time he got it right. And he was probably putting into words what all the rest of the disciples were thinking. This is the one who our nation has been waiting for. This is the one who has been promised to us. This is the one who will deliver Israel. You are the Messiah. And then, as he often did, Jesus warned the disciples not to tell anybody about it. Jesus then began to teach them that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and that he must be killed and then after three days he'll rise again. And the Bible tells us that he spoke very plainly about this so that none of them would misunderstand. And when he finished, Simon Peter took him aside and did what? Gave him a little advice? No. That's not what it says. It says that Peter began to rebuke him. Jesus. And that's interesting to me because just a few minutes before this, Peter had just declared that Jesus was the Messiah, and now Peter is rebuking him. And this is important because, you see, Peter had given the right answer when he was asked the question, who do you say that I am? but he had drawn the wrong conclusion. And let me let that sink in for just a second. He gave the right answer, but he had drawn the wrong conclusion. Peter was absolutely correct when he said that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was absolutely wrong in his conclusion about what that meant. You see, Peter was a product of his culture, just like all of us are. And he expected the same kind of Messiah that everybody else expected. Maybe that's why Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anybody about this, about what it meant, uh, because they were not ready to talk to people about what it meant to say that Jesus was the Messiah, because they didn't understand it themselves. You see, a lot of people had false notions of what Messiah would be. The promised Davidic Messiah was commonly thought would be a a political nationalistic figure who would free the Jews from Roman occupation. But Jesus' mission was not to do that, was it? Jesus' mission was not to deliver Israel, but to deliver all of humanity. And it's not something that, that's not something that could happen with a simple Revolt, like they were looking for. The whole structure of human existence needed to be changed. 
And the disciples didn't have a clue as to what that would entail. And contrary to popular messianic expectations, Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom. Instead, he declared that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected and killed, and after three days rise again. And for the disciples, this was an entirely new paradigm of God's plan for God's people. And they weren't ready for that. They were not prepared to hear that. But Jesus made the point that his suffering and his death must happen. And Peter clearly understood his words. And even though he had just confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, he could not reconcile his view of Messiah with the rejection and the suffering and the death that Jesus said would come to him. You see, Peter had the right answer, but he jumped to the wrong conclusion about what that meant. And so he took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Now, I wonder how often we do that. I wonder how often we get the answer right, but we draw the wrong conclusion about what it means. I mean, if I were to ask you to come up here to the front of the church and ask each of you, who is Jesus? I have no doubt that most of you would answer, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And if I were to ask you, who loves you more than anybody else in this world? More than your parents, more than your children, more than your siblings, more than your spouse? I have no doubt that each of you would say, Jesus loves me like that. And you'd get the right answer. But would you get the conclusion right as well? For example, if I said to you that Jesus loves you more than anyone else on the earth, what would that mean to you? Does that mean that God will place an invisible shield around you and nothing bad will ever happen to you? Intellectually, you say, of course not. But some of you have never really confronted that truth. Pastor Bill Hybels tells about a friend of his who has a brain-damaged daughter. And sometimes the sadness that this friend feels over his daughter or her daughter's condition overwhelms her, as it did recently. She wrote Heibel's a letter in which she said this. She said, I can hardly bear it sometimes. My most recent wave of grief came just before her 16th birthday. As the day approached, I found myself brooding over all the things that she would never be able to do. So what did I do? I did what I've learned to do again and again. I did what I believe is the only thing to do to conquer grief, and that is to embrace it. I cried, and I cried, and I cried, and I faced the truth of my grief head on. Some of you may have encountered a grief like that. Were you able to face it head on? 
How did it affect your faith in God? It affects people in different ways. Did it drive you away from God? Or were you able to hold on to your knowledge that God loves you even in the midst of terrible tragedy? It takes a mature faith to do that. You see, we know that God loves us more than any person on the earth. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that God will place a shield around us so that nothing bad ever happens to us. In fact, some of us have learned about God's love even in the midst of great tragedy. You see, tragedy can be a great teacher for us. Many of you are familiar with the great astrophysicist Stephen Hawking. Dr. Stephen Hawking has become or, or has, has come to be called the most intelligent man on earth. He has advanced the general theory of relativity farther than any person since Einstein. But unfortunately, Dr. Hawking is afflicted with ALS syndrome, Lou Gehrig's disease. It will eventually take his life, though. He's already lived much longer than anyone ever dreamed he would live. He has been confined to a wheelchair for many years where he can do little, little more than just sit and think. He's lost his ability to speak. Now he communicates by means of a computer. Quoting from Omni Magazine, an article in Omni Magazine, the author says this, He is too weak to write to feed himself, to comb his hair, to fix his glasses. All this must be done for him. Yet this most dependent of all men has escaped invalid status. His personality shines through the messy details of his existence. Hawking said that before he became ill, he really didn't have a whole lot of interest in life. He called it a pointless existence resulting in, from sheer boredom. He says he drank too much and he did very little work. And then he learned that he had ALS and was not expected to live more than two years. And the ultimate effect of that diagnosis beyond its initial shock for him was extremely positive. You see, he claimed to have been happier after he was afflicted than before. And we wonder how can that be? Well, this is what Hawking said about it. He said, when one's expectations are reduced to zero, one really appreciates everything that one has. Stated another way, contentment in life is determined in part by what a person anticipates from it. And to a man like Hawking, who, who, who thought that he would die soon, Everything takes on a renewed meaning. A sunrise. A walk in the park. The laughter of a child. Suddenly, every small pleasure becomes so precious. And by contrast, those who believe that life owes them a free ride are often discontent, even with the finest of gifts. You see, it's easy to provide the, the right answer, but to draw the wrong conclusion. And we say that we are 
God's child. And then we think to ourselves, therefore the future will be completely rosy for me. But folks, people whose lives are, off, are completely rosy are often the most miserable people on earth. In other words, a lot of times it's just a front. Look at the lives of many movie stars and recording artists who appear to have it all. But they end up just destroying their lives in an endless quest for even more. And here's Stephen Hawking's reduced to practically none of the world's pleasures. And yet he's grateful for what little he has. Peter, who had just proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, immediately rebuked him when Jesus announced that he would have to suffer and die. Because Peter has provided the right answer, but he drew the wrong conclusion about what that meant. And we can do that too. Because folks, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And Jesus does love you more than anyone else will ever love you. So here's the thing. Here it is, folks. Right here. Trust Him. Trust Him. If you go through a time of trial, trust Him. If you go through a time of suffering, trust Him. If you stand at the door of death, or if someone you love stands at the door of death, trust Him. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And what that means will someday be revealed to us in great clarity. But for now, we see through a glass darkly, as Paul said. It is not clear to us. We don't have all the answers, but what we do have is this. We have faith. And so until that time comes when we have all the answers, here's what we can do. Trust in Jesus, for he will see you through. Amen. Let us sing our closing hymn, number 285, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. And that's what God is calling us to, is to follow the Lord Jesus wherever He leads. And I think that's probably the question that Jesus was asking when He said, Who do you say that I am? Because ultimately how you answer that question will determine what you do, whether you will truly follow Jesus or just admire him from a distance. He wants followers. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Would you follow?
as we go from this place, may we go following the way of Christ. Wherever He leads, we go. Now may the Lord of peace give you peace at all times and in all ways. The Lord be with all of you and trust in Him. Amen. Thank you, Danny. Thank you.